Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Bobo, good evening. How are you doing today? All right, just... uh. I gotta say it real quick before Creedy gets back in. I'm, I've got the game on in the background. I got a bunch of bad songs. So if you hear me scream, it's because of that. Okay, you have the game on. Oh it's, oh, it's football season, isn't it? AFC Championships. I There you go. And I'm assuming AFC is football. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, did you want to keep that in there or should we yeah. start over? So that way people know. Okay, okay. so that's a keeper. We're going to move on from there? Sure. All right. Well, I guess we're keeping that in, Pruitt. <laughs> all right enough football talk i'm boring of it. let's bring in our guest okay <laughs> well i can sound smart about most things but not sports i'm sorry about that um but anyway let's go ahead and bring in our guest and and bobo you know this guy and most of the big footers out there that we list that are listening to us they will know this gentleman as well um he's been a prominent figure in big footing since i mean i'm going to take a stretch here right like at least the late 80s we'll get that information directly from him in just a few minutes here but um he publishes uh the best and i believe the only physical copy of a newsletter on a monthly basis um because everybody else has gone to blogs and whatever else but not this man this man is still steadfast in producing a monthly publication that you can hold in your hands um all about sasquatch called the bigfoot times i'm sure everybody out there knows exactly who i'm talking about at this point so let's go ahead and bring in daniel perez daniel thank you very much for setting aside some time and coming in to talk to bobo and i today hola amigo well thank you for having me and uh happy new year i know we didn't get started off with a a great new year uh so let's just hope that it's a little bit better than last year Don't yeah, count yeah on seriously, it. <laughs> don't count on it. But how much worse can it get? We'll we'll have to wait and see. Oh, it can get I worse. Suppose. It definitely can. But yeah, so Daniel, thank you so much. Um, how many of these uh, do 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 you actually do a lot of these podcasts, or are we special in some way? Uh, this might be the first podcast that I've actually ever done. Uh, no kidding. I, I interviewed with a, a lady, a, what was it, two years ago, but I don't know whether she mentioned whether it was a podcast or just a, an interview that goes out uh, uh, on the internet. So it, as far as I know, this might oh. be the first podcast I've done. No kidding. That's very uh, peculiar to me because figure with a name like yours and your prominence and persistence in the Bigfoot field, I would have figured that people were you know poking at you all the time to get you on the show. So I'm very surprised at that. As I've told people before, I I enjoy trying to fly below the radar. Well, you're doing it the wrong way. You produce a newsletter. <laughs> yes and no. But because it is a physical newsletter that's mailed out, a lot of people don't even understand the concept. They think they want to see a blog on the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a faster, easier, cheaper, quicker way to do it. But you've been how long have you been doing the Bigfoot Times? Uh, the Bigfoot Times started in January of 1998 and has gone on ever since. So that's what, 23 years. We're almost a quarter century old. Holy smokes. And, and about how many subscribers? You have to tell us exactly, but it's certainly in the high hundreds, if not low thousands, well, right? Uh, before, before the financial crisis of what was that, 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. we were approaching a thousand members. And then everything fell apart, and so did the membership, too. They just kind of, uh, I guess a lot of people lost their jobs or whatever, and so the membership went down quite a bit. And uh, as a result of last year, the pandemic, our numbers were going up, 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 and then the coronavirus hit, and it just it flattened a lot of things out. 
I've honestly have never broken 1,000 members uh, ever. Now, you have a couple other publications out I don't, besides the monthly newsletter. And the first one that I'm aware of was your, uh, was your bibliography that you put out of everything Bigfoot you could possibly find. Um, a big footnotes, I believe the title was. Was that your yes. first publication? That was the very first one. Uh, it was a reference book that was published in 1987, I believe. And we printed, I printed because it was self-published. I think there were 4,000 copies and I, I might have nine copies left if I'm lucky. And someone, if you look at the BigfootTimes.net website, which is how you get the Bigfoot Times newsletter, uh, it's not advertised in that website. So last year, someone made an inquiry about them. And in fact, that person lived lives up in Oregon and uh, they said, well, I understand that you published uh, this thing called the Bigfoot Notes. Do you have any left? And I said, yeah. And he wanted two. So uh, he, he made a specific inquiry. So he got two. I'm putting it in the same order right now. And that was the last time the last time I sold copies of that that was last year. So I don't I don't advertise it. But by far the proudest publication I've ever done was the Black Booklet, which is really I would say the gold standard on the PG film, the Patterson Gimlin film, which is Bigfoot at Bluff Creek, which was mm-hmm. originally published in May of 1994 and then republished in September of 2003 for the International Bigfoot <clears throat> Conference, which was in Willow Creek, California. Now, are, this, are those the only two pressings you've done of it? Because there's, those are still available out there. You can still find those occasionally, whether it's a conference on somebody's table or wherever else. Um, are those the only two pressings you've done of that? Yes. It was published once. I think there was a thousand copies printed in 19... 19- May of 1994, and then in September of 2003, I printed another thousand copies. And to date, it's not going to be reprinted again. There's, there's, there might be 20 copies left, and that's it. And someone just bought a copy on eBay just last week, so I was quite pleased. Well, that's an excellent publication, and I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say I have four or five copies of it. Um, for whatever reason that I don't know why I have so many, but I would bring that with me to Bluff Creek when I would go, um, you know, Bigfoot up there, especially in the early days in the 90s or 90s and early 2000s. Um, uh, I would be up there and, and I would have that. I used that to help locate the Patterson Gimlin film. And also, um, it's so strange, like, you know, the Bluff Creek project and their whole quest to relocate this, uh, Patterson Gimlin film site. And they even, they went as far as to reference one of the locations as the Barrickman site one time. But I kept telling them, I learned that site while I was at Dan Perez's house. Like, why would you call it my site? Dan pulled out a map that Rene DeHinden himself marked upon. And I'm just telling you what I saw, but yet they insisted on calling it the Barrickman site for a long time, I guess, because they heard it from me. But I said, I have nothing to do with it. I'm just going to where I was pointed. They're just trying to sex it up. the the map that is published in Bigfoot at Bluff Creek has uh, in what you call an exact address of of the PG film site, and that was that was put there. That notation is Rene De Hinden's, the late Rene De Hinden, the investigator, and so that there was no question that he knew exactly where it was, and when he marked the map, that is exactly where it is finding it because of all the, the the overgrowth of the film site made it for a long time after Rene de Hinden passed on, it made it a little bit difficult. But I, I will back you up just for a moment. When a group of us were there in September, middle September 2003 for the International Bigfoot Conference, uh, myself, Matt Moneymaker, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, the late uh, Dmitry Bionov, Doug Hycheck, Autumn Williams, John Green. Uh, we went up without knowing it. We were all together, and Bob Gimlin was with us too. And he that was the second time he had ever been back to that area. So we went up, not where the film take starts out, but the tail end of the film, you could say, towards uh, frame 954. 
that tail end. We came up from the creek up onto the sandbar. And it was funny because we were standing there and the brush was so tangled that we the, the only logical thing was not to go further into the woods, but to go back to the creek so you could walk. But at that time, Matt Moneymaker put his hand to the ground and kind of moved some of the the the, the leaves and the pine needles and whatnot. And he just said, he says, look, once you clear away, you could see like the sand here that is similar to what Patty walked on. And uh, at the time, I didn't, it didn't, I didn't have that eureka moment till much later when I got back home, I realized, oh my God, we were there and we didn't even know it. Yeah, I'd actually walked through the site itself a couple times without realizing where I was too. So I was at I was on a big bender for a while to try to find the exact location, which is why I started camping in Bluff Creek to begin with. Yeah, but to be like kind of amongst royalty like that, that must have been pretty cool. A great experience in general. I wouldn't have missed it for the life for a lifetime. And uh, when I I was actually a paying member to the I wasn't a member of the press. I actually paid my way to get into the International Bigfoot Conference. And the only thing I uh, asked Al Hodgson is that if I could get ticket number one, and uh, I still have it here in my office, that the, for that conference, I have ticket number one. Yeah, you know, I, I run a Bigfoot museum, but visiting you at your home is, is pretty much the same thing. You have a lot of artifacts, a ton of history, um, and you have just a tremendous Bigfoot tchotchkes and things um and, and not like trashy garbage either not like you know when i say tchotchkes i don't want to like demean what you have by any means because i'm super impressed with your collection um what, what are some of the things in your collection that perhaps you're most proud of i guess or, or are happy to show people you know when they visit you well uh when you were here i think you've been here twice to the house and on the second go around, uh, this had to have been after 2012. So I want to say you were here early 2013 or maybe late 2012. I took receipt of the Bay Area Group's file, which were started by the late George Haas. And then Warren Thompson inherited the files when he passed away. And then when Warren Thompson passed away, I got a hold of the files. And so when I drove all that stuff home in a U-Haul, I made two trips to pick up everything that I had to get back to work. So I just kind of threw everything in boxes in two of the rooms. And then when you were here, I, order, I had already known about the fact that the late Warren Thompson told me about some rocks that... George Haas picked up from the film site when he was there on June 23rd, 1968. And he was there with John Green and Jim McLaren when they made the famous movie of Jim McLaren. So as the story goes, because I never met George Haas, but I did meet Warren Thompson, is that George picked up rocks from one of the footprints that was still visible because John Green made pointed out that you could see the the trackway. You could still see the trackway. So he picked up rocks that were inside uh, Patty's footprints. And so when we were looking at those boxes and I found those rocks, those are the rocks. Yeah. From, yeah, they, they, from the PG. Yeah. So that is like, in terms of uh, if anyone were ever to ask, does anyone have anything that Patty came in direct contact with? Uh, the film subject, uh, I would have to raise my hand and say, yes, I do, the rocks that she stepped on. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. And in your collection, again, that the Bay Area group stuff in general is just vast. Um, I was shocked at how, how much stuff that they accumulated over the years. Um, if I recall correctly, I remember five complete file cabinets and probably 10 or 20 file boxes and and in addition to more like loosely scattered things, you know, like like the box with little rocks in it, for example, or a cast or two, yeah. that sort of stuff. It made my collection instantly maybe about 10 times bigger because I didn't have anywhere nearly as big a collection as what they had. And some of the stuff that they collected early on was limited print stuff that really didn't see a whole big circulation. So I'm just happy to be... Not really so much the owner, but the current caretaker of this data. And so some of it has already been published in the Bigfoot Times. 
Another thing that that I'm very proud to have is that when George Haas was there at the film site in on June 23rd of 68, he took slides of the entire film site, and I have those slides. And so the book or the booklet I'm working on, and I say booklet in the sense that it'll probably not be more than a hundred pages long. Well, the sh- it'll be showcasing the photos that George Haas took of the film site that have never been published anywhere. And so I started uh, already making prints of those to get that ready for the work I'm working on, because I, I think that it would be a good thing for the Bigfoot community to have this uh, these photos uh, for the community so everyone could take a look as the film site looked just less than a year after the film was made. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Now, Daniel, you mentioned uh, how Northern California has a lot of real estate for Sasquatches, but you're way down there in Southern California, and I know you've been Bigfooting for such a long time, far longer than I have. Um, Did you get a chance to be involved or follow up or do any field stuff on those flaps of Southern California Bigfoots, like out in the um, the mountains and desert, like all that sort of stuff in the 70s and 80s when um, there were various sightings down there. Yeah. So the most, the one that I was personally involved with was in 1980 with Doug Trapp. And uh, so Peter Gatella, uh, who's still, I guess, active in Bigfooting, had told, called Doug or sent a letter to Doug, uh, a postal letter to Doug about more activity in Hemet, California. And so Doug had called me up and uh, Hemet, by the way, for those who don't know, it's in between, just basically in between Los Angeles and San Diego, but going away from the coast. And so Doug called me up and wanted to know if- It's kind of high desert, right? Just a little bit. Not not so much high desert like Hesperia and Victorville. It was kind of lower in elevation, I believe. But so Doug and I, Doug called me up and said, hey, did you want to make a trip out there on the weekend? And I said, well, I don't see why not. And the way I recall it, it we had quite a bit of rain at the time. And so we get out there and the people that we wanted to see was Dick and June Putnam but to my memory, they were not there. So uh, we get out there and Doug says, uh, well, shall we just ride around and look around? And I said, well, we're here. Why not? So we took his, we were in his car on these dirt roads and there was ruts in the road from the rain, big ruts. Like if you were to get your tire stuck, you would have to be towed out. So we kind of had to weave in and out and we got to a point where we could drive no further so we got out and started to walk and we were just looking around that we were just literally just looking around and so we got to an area where there was some trees not heavy tree coverage just a couple of trees and a small creek that you could just walk right over but when it was raining it may have been maybe 10 feet wide and so about the same time Doug and I looked down to the sandy dirt and like, uh, kind of like both saying to one another, are those tracks or what's like, what is that that we're looking at right now? And then we got down and it it sure looked like those were footprints right there, right by the creek that had crossed the creek that went underneath the tree. And they were, to my memory, they were 17 inches long. And so that was the first time that I had seen tracks. And what really impressed me was the heel, that you could see the heel really good. And if I'm not mistaken, I took photos of those with a 110 Instamatic camera. I might still have some of the photos, and we made a a casting, but 
to my memory of the casting, we were able to get the casting out from the wet soil, but it kind of later broke up. And I think Doug had it in his possession. And I think it just kind of kind of broke up like a, a crumbly chocolate chip cookie and he probably just threw it away. So that was the, there was a casting, but it just it just didn't come out very good. But there was the tracks. I was 17 years old at the time, and it was kind of weird because I was looking at those tracks and I was saying like, "Wow, there there was really nobody really knew we were going to be out there. We really didn't even know where we were going to go." And so I thought to myself, well, what are the chances of someone being in the exact spot that we were going to go to fake those tracks? And I don't think it would have happened. I don't think it happened that way. And so I think that we saw the trackway of the thing that was reported in the newspaper that Peter Gatella had jumped on, the same individual that had been leaving tracks in that area for probably a little more than a year. Being so young, I was like, wow. I was like, I go, wow, I guess this stuff really is real. <laughs> I, at the time, I was, I, I can't say I was 50-50, but I was, I was definitely interested in the subject. But when I saw those tracks, it was really interesting. And I said, well, yeah, it looks like there's something down here like a Bigfoot. And then in 1986, I was living with my parents in Anaheim Hills when CNN phoned and left a message, believe it or not. And so I phoned them back. I don't know how they got my number, but I guess somehow anyone who at the time knew of Bigfoot kind of knew of me a little bit. And so they told me about some tracks or a group of people that were building a footbridge over the Kern River in the Monachi Meadows of California mm -hmm. in the Southern Sierras. And that was, I, I want to say, August of 86. And uh, I think I phoned, I forget the details, but I think I phoned and maybe got a hold of someone, but uh, they had the sighting. And so I wanted to go up there to investigate. And so we had like a four-day break in our work schedule. So I drove up there. And by happenstance, I met one of the people that was part of the construction crew. I think it was called Letcher Construction Corporation. And uh, he had come out from the woods to get his gas filled. And I saw that this guy was in construction. And I said, hey, do you know anything about this? And he goes, as a matter of fact, we are the people that this happened to. And I, I introduced myself and I said, well, I'd like to go because he had to take the truck back into the woods and then the rest of the way we walked. And so I said, well, why don't I just go with you? I'll just grab all my, my backpack and the whole nine yards. And I went out and I interviewed these people at a picnic table they had made right near the Kern River. And uh, this is 1986. And so he says, oh, and it left tracks too. And I'm doing a tape recording session. And then I, I stopped the tape immediately, and I said, I said, it left tracks. I said, uh, can, can we uh, see these tracks like right now? And by then, it, it had been maybe 10, maybe two weeks. So the, the individual that had seen the tracks uh, walked me over to where the tracks were. And to my memory, those tracks were about 13 and 13 and a half inches long. They were in sandy soil, so they weren't very well defined. But that was like the second time that I had seen tracks in the woods again from someone who had reported a sighting. And so I thought that was just fascinating. So it was kind of like a drug addict being hooked even more. So that's kind of like how I kept getting sucked into the matter. Yeah, because I, I know you were in it when I went to Humboldt State University. I'd go up in the Humboldt room, like where you can't check stuff out. You, you can only read it in the room, and you got to sign it out. And and I, there, they had a section with some Bigfoot books, and every one of them, the only name that it ever checked about was Danny Perez, like nineteen eighty one. And I remember just going, man, because like every time, I, every, every time I found anything Bigfoot in there, 
Danny, it was his name and my name. And then one other guy was in there named Ray Eisenberger. And we were like the only three guys that ever checked out those books ever. Yeah, it was, I was really into it. And uh, so, yeah, when I was at Humboldt State University, yeah, I did. I They told me about their Bigfoot room and uh, whatever the room was called. And I went up to go look at those books. And since then, I've, I've got all those books plus a lot more. Yeah, they, you know, we went through there, uh, Kip and Robert Letterman and... I think Streetford, maybe we all went through there uh, for like a couple of days and there's a lot more, dude, there's a lot of correspondence in there that was awesome from like the original uh, Betty and Al Hodgson and, you know, Roger and, and uh, like McCoy and all these names that kind of the names that ring a bell, but then you read their correspondence like, Oh wow, these guys were on it. You know, they were more on it than, than I thought they were. I didn't know they were that deep involved. And that's when I found out, how involved Jerry Crew was besides just casting that first track, he kept going and he tried for more after like he he became a hardcore squatch after that for quite a yeah, while. Yeah, I, I was never aware at how involved Jerry Crew was uh after nineteen fifty eight. Uh and it was quite impressive that 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 uh he'd seen those tracks, he got hooked like the rest of us and wanted to see who was leaving the tracks. So you you had mentioned Sil McCoy. So I met Sil McCoy in the summer of 1980 when I was up in Willow Creek. And I was uh, part of an expedition with the Texas Bigfoot Research Project. I think that's what they call themselves. So we went up there in their vehicle. It was a big suburban truck or something like that. And we stopped in to see Sil McCoy, who was still working at the time. And so Sil McCoy, for those uh, listeners who are not aware, uh, met Roger Patterson uh, the same day the movie was shot. And so uh, he told me, and back then I wasn't taking any written notes and I wasn't doing, I was doing tape recordings, but I wasn't taping him. But we went to visit him in his office and he was working and he pulled out Polaroid photos of... uh, the tracks, some of the tracks he had seen over the years, and it was kind of like a casual activity. And when it came around to discussing about Roger Patterson, he said, matter of factly, he says, and he was limping too. I don't know if he, I questioned him about that, but I think he added that Roger told him that the horse that he was on fell over on its side. And it bent the stirrup, and it it caught Roger's foot, and that's caused pain on his foot, and that was the reason why he was limping. And so, uh, a fellow, an investigator from Oregon by the name of Dustin Sievers, just recently uh, found in the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I believe, in their digital files in Canada, a 1971 interview with Roger Patterson that uh before he passed away discussing about uh the mechanics of his person his horse the horse he was on and what happened and he just dis- discusses that the horse kind of went over with him and that that is more support of what sil mccoy had witnessed uh roger that evening and it, when sil said that roger was limping and so by Roger's own admission, something happened with him and the horse that came over. And if I'm not mistaken, when David Murphy was working on a book about Roger Patterson, he went to visit Pat Patterson, and he told me that he was shown the bent stirrup that apparently at the time, I want to say this is around 2009, still existed at the time when Pat Patterson lived at her other home out in the valley. Yeah, she showed it to me. So so that story about Roger falling to the side uh, is likely very true by his own admission. Now, you're kind of widely recognized as one of the experts on the Patterson-Gimlin film, and rightly so, with all the time um, you've put into it and the publications you've produced and that sort of thing. Are there anything, are, are there any uh, details about the film that, bother you to this day and i think it's fair to say that all three of us accept it as being a, a you know film of a real sasquatch but do you think there's any um 
anything that's a little bit out of focus, perhaps a, a, a lack of recall by the participants or maybe history got something wrong or anything that you feel still needs to be like set a little bit more in focus, I guess is a good way to say it. Well, one thing that was outstanding for quite a bit was the authorship of the first article that was published in the Eureka Times Standard the very next day. There was no byline. Everything, everyone who was anyone at the time thought it was Andrew Gentoyle who wrote about Bigfoot at the time. And uh, so by the time I got down to Fortuna, which I want to say was the late 90s, I met with uh, Andrew Gentoyle's widow. I think her name was Betty. I, for, I forget her name exactly. I might be thinking about someone else, but I did talk with Andrew Gentoyle's widow. And I told her about the story that I'm telling you. And I told her when I get back home, I would send in the mail a copy of the article that her husband allegedly wrote. And she told me, she says, I don't think Andrew wrote that article because it doesn't have as look and feel to it that I would get when Andy used to write his pieces on Bigfoot for the newspaper. So as I suspected, it probably was not Andrew Gentoyle. And then when I was up in, I guess it was not Humboldt State University, but the Eureka or Arcata Library, I did some research there in the newspapers. And I was able to locate an individual by the name of Al Tostado that wrote an article one week after it, after the original article. And in the second article, he had taken passages from the first article and put it into his second article. And I guess in the newspaper business at the time, that that would be considered, if he didn't write it himself, that if you lifted something from someone else and put it in your article without credit, that would be called plagiarism. But he doesn't give credit to anyone. So one is going to assume that Al Tostado wrote the first piece and the second piece, and it was Al Tostado who spoke with Roger Patterson that evening for that very famous first write-up in a newspaper. So the second thing that bothers me, loose ends about the PG film, and uh, I, I wish the, the person's probably dead now, but the, the 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 person who processed the film. So the film was processed between probably October 21st, and it was shown at Roger's brother-in-law's house, the late Aldi Atlee's, October 22nd. And John Green was present, Renee Dehin was present, Jim McLaren was present, Roger Patterson was present, Aldi Atlee was present, and Aldi Atlee's wife at the time. Uh, who's still living. And I tracked down a newspaper article uh, that Roger, the newspaper writer, asked Roger point blank, where was the film developed? And he says, I had it, almost quote, he says, I had it developed at a private place. It would jeopardize the man's job if it were known. So we never, no one has ever figured out the name of the person who processed that film. But somehow we know for a fact that it was processed, but we don't know the name. So if there's anything crooked about the PG film, that perhaps the it happened during the processing, but I can't imagine it, that something would happen because, I mean, Bill Munns has looked at uh, copies of the duplicates of the film. And he doesn't seem, his contention is that what you see is a spontaneous piece of film from start to finish. And that regardless of who processed the film, there doesn't seem to be any hanky-panky in the film itself. But it would be nice to know who processed the film. To this very day, we don't know. And that person more than likely has passed away. Whether they did it at the Seattle Processing Plant uh, Ford Motion Picture Lab, I don't know, or there was another place called Alpha Cine, C-I-N-E, I don't know. 
I went to both locations, and by then I was already late to the game in the mid-90s, but I couldn't find out anything. And Renee had made those early trips probably in the late 70s trying to find out, and he was never able to find out who processed the film. And by then, Roger had passed away. I think, what did he pass away in 1972, I believe. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Yeah, Dan, and uh, you're not just a North American investigator. You're an international investigator. You went down and checked out that famous, what I don't know if it still is, but it, it was always the, the, the best video of a supposed Yowie from Australia. And you went and actually went to the location and checked it out yourself. Well, that the timing was perfect. So that was the summer of 2000. And so I was going down to Sydney, Australia for the Summer Olympic Games, regardless of Yowie or Bigfoot. And I was in touch with a couple of the people down there already, Paul Cropper, Tony Healy, and uh, Tim the Yowie Man, and a couple of other people. But somehow, I think it was Tim had sent me an email link or something like, no, take that back. I think it was Paul Cropper who sent me an email link or something about a film, a a videotape in the Brindabella Mountains that was shot by Steve Piper. And it was on a Monday, August of 2000. And so I was there, what, maybe just a little less than a month later and so when I got my boots on the ground, I, I told these people, I said, all the, like, the applications on phones and stuff like that, none of that was really available back then. You had to put a quarter in the phone to make a phone call to someone or get a calling card. So I got on the phone with Paul, and then I got on the phone with Tony, and the Olympic Games hadn't opened up yet. And I said, uh, Uh, what do we have to do to make this happen? Because I want to get out to the site as quickly as possible. And I wanted to see if we could get the witness who shot the video out there as well. So we made it happen. And we got out to the Brindabellas uh, where this was shot. And the guy told us that he was just shooting like random videotape for, I guess it had something to do with a band or something, some background footage or something, when he caught this, got this footage. And he told me, because I spent a better part of a day with him, he said, uh, he said, yeah, I knew about the Yowie and stuff, and I thought it was all bullshit. And he says, uh, then he says that uh, he's, he's shooting and he sees this thing down in the gully. And we went down in the gully where he was. And I'm pretty convinced that it's a Yowie. Others, Paul Cropper and Tony Healy and other people aren't so convinced about it. But I was pretty, pretty impressed by the whole thing and pretty impressed by him. And uh, I guess the, the, there's only two options. It was a Yowie or a man in a suit. And I'm just not buying the man in the suit business. We didn't have someone to go down there with a monkey suit down to do a recreation footage, but had Finding Bigfoot or something, a show like that, been in existence at the time, it would have been neat to get down there to try to do a recreation because you look at the videotape and it's just like, I just don't see a man in a costume. It has a limp, I think, right? Didn't it have a little limp? Yeah, and I wrote about that in the newsletter, the Bigfoot Times, that it seemed it I think I wrote that I don't know whether it's a limp or whether it seems to be favoring one leg or something, but it something something is happening with the uh, the ambulation, the the walk. So it, it's not as fluid. It seems like it, it the impression I get is that it seems to be favoring one leg. And it's it's moving through this gully area. I think they they told me it was a snigging trail, and I said, "Well, what is a snigging trail?" I think that's the term they used. And they said this is where they they fell trees and they pull them out of the woods, and so you have this pathway. And so when it was walking down this snigging trail, which was a pathway that was kind of open, I was impressed. 
Well, now that brings up a point. Um, for a long time, I think probably until Finding Bigfoot reared its ugly head, you wore the crown of the person who had been to the most locations where purported Bigfoot films had occurred. What Tom Steinberg had pointed that out to me at the time. And prior to that, I never really gave any thought to it. And mind you, I did all this on my own dime. Well, yeah, an accomplishment in itself, really, um, because it's not cheap getting around the world. But um, what other films have you personally investigated on site? Well, in Ohio, uh, I was there in 96 with my motorhome and uh, Don Keating's videotape, uh, the one from, I guess they call it Bigfoot Lake or whatever. So I did on-site investigation there. And I want to say there was another video, and I, I think... Either I was there at the same time or at a later date, and I went to investigate that as well. And then in California, after the the Redwoods, it's often referred to as the Playmate footage that was shot in uh, 1994 or somewhere around there. And I got there, I think, in December of 1995 to do an on-site investigation. What was interesting is prior to me being there, that for a show, I want to say it was hard copy, but I may be mistaken, that the late Richard Greenwell and Dr. Jeff Meldrum, I think this was Dr. Jeff Meldrum's premiere, uh, his first time on TV for a show of this nature. And they went up to investigate uh, the Playmate footage. And then when it was broadcast on TV, I drove up to investigate, and it rained quite a bit. When I got there, the, the one thing that was still left, there was a curved branch that is seen in the video. And so I collected that curved branch, hoping that it might be of value later on. And unfortunately, I, I kept it in my motorhome and I had a, an accident with the motorhome. And so that piece of stick, that stick vanished with it. Burned up. Yeah. But yeah. That's a pretty just, classic. That's a classic story. Danny, Danny's a uh, death of his motorhome. That was September of '98, and uh, so I I was up there again. I wanted to stay up in the Bluff Creek area. I think it was the Labor Day weekend. I just wanted to get up there and kind of look around. And unfortunate for me, with the motorhome, I decided to take the worst road down to Laos Camp, which was uh, I had been on that road before with my Volkswagen Jetta. And it was in actually in good shape, and this time it was in horrible shape. And it just uh, it had ruts in the road that where the tires got caught in it, and that once they were in there, there was no turning back, and it was downhill. So then the the, the motorhome went off the side of the the dirt road into the trees. Had had there been no trees, I would have went all the way down. But. Uh, and that's went to the side, and then I guess the propane pilot light was what the source of ignition for uh, the flames. So, and just prior to that too, which is I back then it was the non-digital era. There was photos and negatives. I had a shoebox of uh, photos and negatives from my various travels that I thought I said, you know, maybe I should take these home to unload the motorhome, but I said, well, why make the trip? I'll just keep them with me. But unfortunately, a lot of that stuff got lost. That's a bummer. You gotta, it was kind of cold that night. You just, you were just wearing shorts and t-shirt because it was uh, warm during the day. And then you had to follow the fire with like... Yeah, because uh, there was nobody out there and it was outside of the, the, fo- the forest fire. There was no, there was just starlight. And uh, during the day... So I just had my jogging shorts on and a light shirt. And so I literally had to, uh, at nighttime, it gets very cold cold in that area. So I just had to kind of follow the fire myself physically to keep warm, to get to get the warmth up because I had no blankets. I had nothing. Yeah, you know, it's a very dangerous area. Like if anything goes wrong, you put yourself literally, you put your life in danger out there. Um, and I don't know anybody um who would disagree with like just thinking bluff creek no matter how many bigfooters are crawling over it nowadays is still a very remote very kind of dangerous area to be trapped in in a difficult circumstance like if your motorhome is on fire or any number of other things i know that i've been in danger there more than once um just 
through my own stupidity or just circumstance, you know, uh, it's a long ways from help. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. And I would encourage anyone to, uh, if you go back in that area or do any sort of bigfooting out in the deep woods, just always have a buddy with you because you never know what could go wrong. And when you think things aren't going to go wrong, you could be sadly mistaken. So the last time well, when we were there for the 50th anniversary of the PG film, I wasn't expecting snow, but the next day or that evening, it did snow. And I wasn't really, uh, I've never been up in that country when it did snow. And I wasn't, I had heavy gear, but I wasn't really expecting uh, the temperatures to drop that low, but it did. Dude, Bluff Creek is the coldest. It's a microclimate unto itself out there. It is way colder than any other place out there. It's so steep and north, like it doesn't get any sun in the winter. It gets freezing. It's like an icebox in there. You have my total agreement on that. So, yeah. So, Daniel, in, in this era of Bigfooting, as we're moving forward and like with the study of these things and a whole new herd of people are is jumping on the wagon and all this stuff, what has you excited in Bigfooting nowadays? You know, what, what are you really deeply interested in or what are you looking forward to or anything like that? Well, I'm starting to realize I'm getting older. I'm 57 now. When I, when I got interested in the subject, it was about 1973 by the legend, the movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek. So I'm starting to realize that uh, time is running out and the, the, the investigators and researchers who came before me what they all wanted to do they never achieved was to actually find one. And as grandiose as that might seem or sound, uh, that is, uh, I guess, part of my end game is that we need to get uh, a body to absolutely establish that these things are out there. Because for the most part, uh, the world in general and the scientific community, they don't take too much stock in this subject matter. And I think it's a very important subject matter because here we have in the woods probably man's closest living relative that uh, most people don't even realize is out there. And so that's what my mission statement is, is that that I think we need to get a body. And most people will say, well, just what's let's get it some more good footage but we already have the pg film and that was shot over 50 years ago and to date it's still the best piece of footage so we don't need more footage now are you going to go out there with a gun now or is this just something that you're advocating for others to do well, or how what do you see a role in that I, it's it's not so much advocation i'm just telling people the nature of what i think needs to happen Mm, yeah. Because because there's most of right now is more of the same. It, it's everyone is doing the same thing that other people are doing. And one thing though is that the night vision scopes uh, that we have today for uh, Bart Coutinho from California is big on using them, and it's just like and has had success. And I think uh that's a great way to get out there to see something is that those night vision scopes and game cameras, even though game cramp cameras are not always the most successful uh, tool in your toolbox, because there's a percentage of Bigfooters who think that they're deliberately avoiding game cameras. I don't know if that's true, but we know that other animals uh, deliberately avoid uh going in the proximity of game cameras uh knowing that they're there i think there's no doubt they avoid them yeah certainly there's a lack of photographs from game cameras but then again maybe it's proportional to the population of the species which i think we would all agree is pretty rare um are you involved in any research right now um, besides just cataloging your vast library that um that uh you'd like to share with us the only thing that i'm really doing is working on the pictorial book uh, of the PG film site, because that's something that everybody knows about, but they haven't seen all the beautiful photos that George Haas took of the film site. So that is my current project. And so well, that, that sounds rad. I, I, I would, I personally would love that. 
Hey, Daniel, we super appreciate you coming on and sharing all this info with us. And where can people order the, uh, your products, you know, your newsletter, books, and whatever you got for sale? Well, mostly it's the Bigfoot Times newsletter, which is sent out to the membership uh, via the postal mail. And uh, they would just go on the internet and type in bigfoottimes.net. And that essentially is the one product I have uh, every month, the Bigfoot Times newsletter that's mailed to the membership. Yeah, for whatever it's worth, I'm a longtime subscriber. I get it every single month. I love the thing. I highly encourage anybody who's interested in like a, a monthly thing to read about Bigfoot that's new. If maybe the uh, incident isn't new, but the research is. And uh, Daniel is meticulous about the facts and getting the details. And I just can't recommend um, subscribing to the Bigfoot Times enough. And like I, I put my money where my mouth is. Um, I do it too. So I, and I've been a subscriber for a long time. Yes. So yeah, I, yes, I encourage you, you guys to do that. Yeah. Well, cool. Fantastic. And we are very pleased you had the time to come on and talk to us. I really appreciate it, Daniel. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. All right, Bobes. There it is, man. Daniel Perez. I'm pretty stoked to have him on. Yeah, dude. I, I love that news. You know, I'm so flaky. Like I'll, I'll buy a bunch of back issues like at a conference or something, but I'm so bad at like keeping up on like sending in checks to get the thing and all that. I guess you can order online now. I got to go back and I'll just hit him up for another, you know, back order issue. Yeah. Well, he reminds you, I, th I think actually, I think my subscription is up either January or February, so I have to repay as well. But yeah, it's definitely worth it. And uh, you got to get back on board, Bob. I know. I've been lagging. All right. Well, thanks again for tuning in for another episode of Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. You can uh, find us on any platforms and spread the word. All right. Till next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 